Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. And welcome to Tony Katz today. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony. Tony's back tomorrow. But in the meantime, I've enjoyed sitting in. This is my second time since he's been on his travels. I hope you've enjoyed seeing Tony on uh, Fox News. That's where I've seen him a couple of times. I believe he's been on News Nation, a couple other national news broadcasts, and has done a great job. He's done uh, he's done us proud back here at uh, WIBC and MS Communications, and we're glad he's getting that kind of exposure because he's good at it. In the meantime, we've got a lot to talk about. A federal magistrate judge has ruled on the request to unseal the affidavit that was used to establish probable cause for the uh, raid on President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And I talked about this last Thursday when I was in for Tony because this ruling had not yet come down. We knew that there was a hearing actually on that day, last Thursday. And we anticipated that there would be a big debate that it would be a hotly contested hearing because the government does not want to unseal this affidavit. What is this affidavit? What does it have to do with anything? Why should we simply as U.S. citizens be interested in what's in it? Well, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's home, to search for documents that he allegedly had there illegally, either in violation of the Presidential Records Act uh, there's an allegation floating around out there, apparently that allegation used to obtain the warrant, that there's even a violation of the Espionage Act, which gets pretty serious. And then also uh, a contention that the president, the former president, may have uh, committed the crime of obstruction of justice. So there was this search warrant issued, and I actually went through the warrant itself, and I went through a bit of a discussion on whether the warrant was sufficiently specific in terms of where exactly FBI agents were authorized to search and what it is they were searching for, because the Fourth Amendment commands that no warrants issue but upon probable cause. That's exactly the wording of the Fourth Amendment. But in addition, they have to particularly describe the areas to be searched and the items to be seized in the case of a search warrant. And so we went through that discussion. But the warrant itself is really just the end product of the process that law enforcement and the Justice Department, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, go through in order to obtain and execute a warrant. The warrant itself is the outcome. The process for obtaining that warrant directly involves the establishment of probable cause for the warrant itself. And in fact, what a a judge, in this case, the magistrate judge, has to have found is that the evidence submitted to that judge, and this is Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt. By the way, if you're not familiar with that term or you've heard it and don't know exactly what it means, in the U.S. court system, and and, and in the state court system in most states as well, you have uh, judges in the U.S. system, they're appointed. Federal judges are, are, are appointed uh, and then confirmed. And then you also have magistrate judges that essentially operate kind of a, a notch down from the appointed federal judges. And they, they are authorized to actually try cases if the parties agree to try them to a magistrate judge. But short of that, they, they typically don't conduct trials as the actual U.S. 
uh, district court judges do at the trial court level, but they handle a lot of other administrative matters, including the review of applications for warrants and the issuance of those warrants if they find that they meet legal requirements. And they handle a lot of other matters. A lot of times they'll oversee uh, settlement negotiations if the parties ask them to do that. Uh, They'll handle discovery matters if one party says, hey, they're entitled, uh, or we're entitled, I should say, to this document or that document or this group of documents or or this electronic discovery or to interview, uh, depose these witnesses, whatever it might be, and the other party's not cooperating or not complying with the rules of discovery, they'll go in and, and have a hearing. And a magistrate judge often will make a ruling on those issues. So you, you, people have heard them described as, as Judge Light, uh, quote-unquote, and I, I think that's a little disrespectful. I don't use that term. But, but they are essentially, a, a authority-wise, notched down from the actual U.S. District Court judges. So here you have a U.S. magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhardt, who is the guy who issued the warrant. So he was the guy who found there was probable cause. And there has to be probable cause on two issues. One, that a crime has been committed. Now, probable cause is a dramatically lower standard than what it takes to convict someone. And unfortunately, a lot of people hear, well, if a judge has found probable cause, that person must be guilty. Absolutely not, because the judge has only heard one side of the equation. The judge has only heard from the government. The judge hasn't seen any exculpatory evidence, in other words, evidence against the idea that this person might be guilty of a crime. They haven't heard any arguments. They haven't heard from counsel for the uh, person who's being investigated. They've heard one side of the argument. It's what we call an ex parte process, meaning they've only heard from one party in, in, involved here. They haven't heard from pre- former President Trump. I don't, I'm sorry, once you're a president, I think it's fair to continue to call you president. I, from this point forward, will do so. So they've only heard from one side, and the standard is merely probable cause, which is a dramatically lower standard than proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what it takes to convince some, convict someone. So don't draw too many conclusions when you hear a judge found probable cause. The second part of that, though, is often an analysis of what evidence was actually submitted by the government, just one side of the argument. What evidence was submitted that, in this judge's mind, established that probable cause to believe a crime's been committed, and secondly, that there will be evidence found at the location sought to be searched that's probative of that crime? Two-step process. That a crime's been committed, again, just probable cause, and then secondly, there has to be evidence submitted establishing that reasonable foundation for the belief that there is evidence at this location that is relevant to proving this person committed that crime. So the affidavit that was the subject of the hearing last Thursday and that we now have a ruling on to some degree is in all likelihood, and this is in all likelihood a a very long document containing quotes and witness uh, names, uh, partial transcripts, could have documents attached, who knows what all is in this. But what that is, is it's the government's argument to establish probable cause that President Trump committed a crime. Now you see the level of interest. Now you see why so many people want to know exactly what is in it. Because, for instance, if there is evidence in there from non-credible sources, if there is evidence in there submitted by 
people who have already established an extreme anti-Trump position? Is there evidence in there that actually can be completely refuted and debunked, like, oh, say, the Steele dossier, the completely fabricated document used to establish that same probable cause to essentially spy on the Trump campaign? that later turned out to be a complete fabrication. That was in the affidavit used in the FISA court to obtain the warrant in that respect. So you, now you see the interest, and now you see the relevance, and that's why a lot of us, I think, once this is released to some degree, are going to be pouring over it and extremely interested in an analysis of what exactly is in that affidavit. What did the judge say? Well, it's not a matter of simply releasing it or not. He ordered that the affidavit be released. However, the government has the opportunity to redact it and to black out portions of it. And when the, the people, mainly uh, members of the media, media organizations were arguing to unseal it, they said, by the way, if there's something ultra-sensitive in there, like, say, victim, or, or rather witness is a more accurate term, witness names, Witness identities, and these people might be put at some risk by uh, the fact that it's revealed that they're cooperating with the government in an investigation of, government, of, of President Trump. Then, then, then those can be redacted. So you don't have to not unseal the document, Your Honor. You don't have to resist with uh, releasing it at all. When a redacted version can be released, it still gives people the information they want and they protect witness identity. Government came back and said, well, that's not good enough because this will reveal a roadmap to the government investigation. And it's an ongoing investigation. In fact, there was an argument that this is in the infancy stage of the investigation, which I truly do not understand. Because if the contention is the government is arguing to the court the establishment of probable cause on the issue of the president took documents from the White House and took them to Mar-a-Lago and had these confidential documents, top secret documents, whatever they were, there that he was not allowed to have, he was not allowed to take from the White House when he left the presidency, and therefore that's a crime. Well, they searched all of Mar-a-Lago. They had 30 agents going over it. They seized all the documents they wanted to seize, and then some. Why is the investigation in its infancy? Why is it just getting started? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. But let's say that's true. So now the government's saying, well, we, we don't want to reveal the roadmap to our investigation, and, and, and that's what the affidavit will disclose. And it's an ongoing investigation, and it's too early. It'll jeopardize our investigation. The judge says, well, if there's something along those lines you need to redact too, you go right ahead. Well, that's going to be damn near everything in this affidavit, I guarantee you. The government has until this Thursday to release a redacted version of the affidavit, and I predict to you right now it's going to be page after page after page of nothing but black lines with, the, with an occasional and or 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 semicolon revealed between the redacted words in between. In other words, it's going to be completely useless to reveal any substantive information and give people what they're looking for, which is an understanding of what evidence was submitted to this judge that established probable cause for the issuance of this warrant. That's not the end of it, however. The government doesn't have complete discretion because then the people seeking the release of the affidavit can go back and say, hold on, this is ridiculous. Now, they don't get to see what's redacted. The judge does that in what we call in-camera 
behind closed doors, the judge and the judge's staff can hear argument on why what was redacted was necessarily redacted and hear argument for why it renders the document completely meaningless. And then the judge reviewing the actual information in the unredacted document can make a ruling on what does or doesn't actually need to be redacted before it's released. So even though a ruling has come down on this issue, it is fairly early in, in the, the, the process of deciding what actually gets revealed. But I can't minimize the interest in this because it is going to be, when released, and by the way, if, if criminal charges are filed, these affidavits, as I said last Thursday discussing this issue, are routinely disclosed. So at some point down the road, we will see this affidavit. It's going to be very interesting to me to see what evidence was submitted to a U.S. magistrate judge to say a former sitting president should have his home raided by 30 agents of the FBI, and this is the evidence that establishes that's necessary. In lieu of, for instance, simply issuing another subpoena. They had already served a subpoena. What's a subpoena? It's just a request for documents. Here, here are the documents we want. Send them to us. Also issued by a court. People with machine guns don't show up in body armor at your home. You simply respond to the subpoena. Hillary Clinton responded to a subpoena by destroying all the evidence in the form of emails that the subpoena requested. President Trump had people show up with guns and body armor at his home. And the justification for that will be found in this document. That's why it's worthy of some discussion, and it's certainly worthy of interest if and when it is actually released. In the meantime, uh, time for a break. I'm Guy Relford, in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Welcome back. I'm Guy Relford, in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. It's a pleasure to be here while Tony finishes up his travels. He'll be back here tomorrow. Story out of Fishers, Indiana, out over the weekend. But we had a heroic police officer, Noah Chavez, from the Elwood Police Department, who lost his life in a police action shooting when a person with a long, violent criminal history who by all accounts should have been in jail, was pulled over wee hours of the morning by Officer Chavez. A person just got out of their car and started shooting, according to the evidence that's been released, uh, with an illegally possessed firearm, a rifle, and fired many, many, many shots, a shockingly high number of shots, and killed Officer Chavez. And so, obviously, it's a horrible tragedy for the whole community. It's obviously, particularly, a tragedy for the Chavez family. And Noah himself, Officer Chavez, went to Fishers High School in the Hamilton Southeastern School District. Relatively new school. Fishers High School wasn't around when I went to high school. Um, but that's where Noah went, and that's where he has a little brother still going. And as w was reported late last week and over the weekend, the, the little brother took some time off from school, as you would expect, after an incredible family tragedy like this. And there was communication within Fishers, apparently, according to information released by the administration, talking about, hey, you know, here's some things we, you know, we can do and should do to support Noah's brother when he comes back to school. Well, 
well, he came back to school here late last week, and in one of his first couple of classes that he attended, there's a huge poster up in the classroom of a particular teacher named, teacher named Marina Gibson, a 26-year-old teacher there and president of all things of the Mental Health Club at Fishers High School. And the poster has, as a huge title, to fund the police. And in fairness, and I'm not seeing this reported a lot, I've seen a picture of the actual poster, and there is a question mark after the title of defund the police. Does that make a huge difference? It makes some difference. I wouldn't say a huge difference, because the idea that the little brother of a police officer who has just lost his life, coming back to school should have to be confronted with this, is completely outlandish. And it also begs the question of why a teacher not only would lack the sensitivity to take this down, or in doing the balancing of how much do I care about this kid, you're president of the mental health club, for crying out loud, so as ostensibly concerned about mental health as I am, however I feel about the police and however I feel about the issue of defunding the police, maybe I come out of this on the side of taking this damn poster down simply out of respect for this young man, out of concern for his mental health, and perhaps for respect to the family who just lost a heroic and beloved family member. You would think that would be part of the equation. It didn't happen this way. And, reportedly, this profoundly impacted this poor young kid who just lost his big brother. That's not okay. Now, there's been an apology of sorts issued by the Hamilton Southeastern School District. They've said they're going to follow up with this teacher. This teacher apparently has a history uh, on the defund the police issue, including a situation that happened at Fisher's High School where... uh, particular student was being detained in an investigation of drug use, and the teacher started yelling George Floyd and police brutality. Uh, Hey, you know, I'm all for First Amendment rights, but when you put all these things together, I think the unfortunate thing is how this young man was treated by Fishers High School and by Hamilton Southeastern Schools. More about this, and we're going to talk to folks from Chalkboard Review when we come back. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back to Tony Cast Today. I'm Guy Rilford sitting in for Tony. Glad you're with us. To get into some additional detail on the story coming out of Fisher's High School on uh, really what I think is some very disrespectful treatment of the little brother of Noah Shanavez, the uh, officer uh, tragically lost uh, from the Elwood Police Department. Um, we're going to bring in... Uh, Garyan Frankel. Garyan is the breaking news reporter from Chalkboard Review. If you're not familiar with Chalkboard Review, uh, the co-founder, executive director of uh, Chalkboard Review is Tony Kennett. And Kennett, Tony, I should say, is a frequent uh, guest and actual fill-in host uh, quite often here on WIBC and does a fabulous job. I think he does a great job on the radio, and I hope to hear more of him uh, here on WIBC. Uh, but 
Uh, Gary, I appreciate you joining us, and uh, you are the breaking news reporter, and I think Chalkboard Review actually came out with some of the most detailed information on this situation. So first of all, uh, welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us here on the Tony Katz Today Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So w- how did you you folks at Chalkboard Review first hear of this? And, and again, you obtained, I think, some of the most detailed information, including regarding the teacher involved. Um, when you, as you as you broke this story, as you got into it, what, what, what was just your overall impression uh, looking at the issue coming out of Fisher's High School? Yeah, so the most important thing to keep in mind is that everything that we published in our article on the matter uh, has been approved directly by the Chavanaugh family. Mm-hmm. Um, this is obviously the type of story that could easily get sensationalized, um, could easily be subject to quite a bit of hearsay. So we just wanted to make sure that we had the most truthful, um, personal account on the matter. And what I think it represents is that it's really hard in uh, and, and this day and age, and especially if you look into the teacher's background, to give anybody the benefit of the, the, benefit of the doubt anymore. Yeah. Um, just everything has become such a quagmire that reliable information over um, not just a subject of interest, but a subject that's been deeply hurtful to a lot of people in the Fishers community, it's it's important to have that information. It really is, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, what we're talking about here, obviously, is a, a desire to show respect to the Shanavez family, um, and, and if we're going to criticize the Hamilton Southeastern School District and Fishers High School over this particular teacher in particular, um, it, it makes a lot of sense to back up and say, hold on, your reporting at Chalkboard Review had as your first priority to clear everything and, and, and in the process show respect to that same family. So um, that sounds like it was exactly your priority. Exactly right. It's not our job to make prescriptive judgments about what the community should do or how the school district should handle it. I know a lot of people have been asking for the teacher's head. That's not our job to really comment or um, give an opinion on that kind of matter. Uh, Our job is to have all of the pertinent and relevant details available to the community at large. So it's the people that are empowered to make their own judgments. Well, exactly. It, not asking you to make any judgments, because I think that's uh, certainly an appropriate approach, and I think that's consistent with what I see coming out of the chalkboard review, uh, really, uh, since Tony Kennett and, and others uh, founded it here fairly recently. Uh, but I think what we can do is we can we can lay out the facts so people can draw their own conclusions. And, and, and I think with the, the background of this particular teacher, and the fact that she chose to put this poster up to begin with. And again, and, and it's something I mentioned as I introduced this last segment, uh, and I think you go by Gary, is that right? May I, may I call you Gary? Feel free to. Yeah, well, and I think, and I don't know if you heard this part, Gary, but um, it, the, the poster, it, it does have a huge title on it that says defund the police. There is a question mark there. And the, and the teacher, uh, in her explanation, said this was part of a project where a student argued both, the pros and the cons of defunding the police. So it wasn't necessarily an advocacy piece for defunding the police. I think if we're going to give this story fair treatment, uh, we have to include that part of it as well. Is that consistent with what you found? Absolutely. But there's also 
something that you have to keep in mind, not just with the poster itself, a picture of which is available in the original article up on Chalkboard Review, but also the background of the teacher. Yes. Uh, if you look at the poster itself, there are the classic fists all over the place, and that is the some of the only decorations adorning the poster, and that's something to keep in mind. And then with the teacher herself, uh, this is somebody with a long history of, progress, of progressive activism, uh, going back to her time at uh, Butler University, where she was awarded the Grace Farrell Award for Political Engagement and Social Activism. And this has continued into the classroom. Uh, we've had multiple students who we're going to keep anonymous report to Chalkboard Review that this teacher is prone to going on rants in the classroom about different progressive causes. Um, this is somebody who hangs a pride flag in the classroom. And this is somebody when a, a student was being investigated by police for, I believe it was drug charges, she was yelling George Floyd and police brutality as the officers were attempting to detain the suspect. Now, we don't have body camera footage of that particular incident, but we've had had, we have had multiple officers from the Fishers Police Department confirm that that incident did indeed occur. So that information is a part of the story, and we thought that it had to get out there. And I think that's a fair description of the events. Could a reasonable person conclude here that this teacher simply elected to have her woke agenda and her personal uh, political views take precedence really over uh, respect for uh, and care of uh, a student who had just gone through a tragedy like this? Yeah, and uh, sort of on that note, one thing I did want to highlight is that in their in one of their initial statements to Chalkboard Review, the Hamilton Southeastern Board of Trustees uh, commented that the teacher apologized to the student and the family, but that is a little misleading. She didn't apologize for having the poster up. Uh, she apologized that, you know, this poor kid in the Chauvinist family didn't talk to her about it. Hmm. So based on that information, I think it's, definitely a reasonable conclusion that someone could come to. I personally find irony in the fact that this teacher is a faculty sponsor of the mental health club. I mean, I think to have that interest and be willing to take on that extracurricular activity. Um, and I, I say this uh, as a psychology major myself from way back when in my undergraduate days, um, you know, to have an interest in that and, 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 and to want to, uh, promote mental health within Fishers High School. Uh, do you share the view that there's some irony in the idea that she's a faculty sponsor for the mental health club yet didn't see the need to take this poster down? But well, I, I don't want to get too far into the depths of my own opinion, but just objectively speaking, there is uh, a little bit of irony in that something that was so traumatic to the Chauvinist family was something that was caused, whether it was direct or indirect, by somebody who was the head of the mental health club. And it just goes to show that um, there's a reason why communities have become so mistrustful. I think that's exactly right. And Gary, last question for you. And again, thank you so much for taking the time and appearing here on Tony Cast today as, as I'm filling in for Tony. Um, but last question is, you know, there was a statement put out by the 
trustees of the Hamilton uh, uh, Southeastern School District, and um, there was, to some degree, a statement or an apology out of Fishers High School. Overall, what did you think of the response? Because, you know, Hamilton Southeastern has been the subject of a lot of discussion, including uh, uh, coverage within the Chalkboard Review on their woke agenda, generally speaking, totally separate and apart and and long predating this event. but what did you think of the response from Fishers and or Hamilton Southeastern? Well, on that note, I think in general, actions speak louder than words. And the way that they misre- misrepresented um, the interactions between the teacher and the chauvinist family is cause for concern, whatever it was they said in their statement. Fair enough. And I think I think that is a fair depiction as well. Uh, listen, Gary and Frankel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Give our best to Tony Kennett. Uh, he does a, just a great job on the radio as well. You did a fabulous job today. We, we hope you have you back, whether that's on uh, my show or as I co-host on others or other shows here on WIBC. So thanks so much for taking the time out of your day today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thanks again to Chalkboard Review. Uh, check them out, chalkboardreview.com. Uh, Tony Kennett is one of the co-founders here. I believe he's going to be on uh, Hammer and Nigel yet later today, uh, but they do a great job there. And I think they're, uh, as you heard there, very objective, at the same time very honest in how they portray issues related to the education of our children uh, here in Indiana and beyond. Uh, but uh, right now, again, it's time to take a break. We'll be back. We're going to discuss in some additional detail, this issue of really um, disrespect of our law enforcement community and their families. Uh, but we're going to be joined by Representative Victoria Sparks. She's my representative uh, in uh, here in Indiana. I'm, I'm proud to say I supported her election. I think she's doing a fabulous job in Washington. And I think she's exactly who we need in Washington. But she put out a statement uh, really not necessarily directly addressing the Chavanez situation and the Fishers High School situation, but I think she made a very poignant point. She also just today issued a statement on Ukraine and what she sees sees as a need for some improvement in uh, in the process by which we are providing lethal aid to the Ukraine. Going to get into both of those issues with Representative Victoria Sparks when we come back. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Rilford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz today. And I'm going to go right to the drivehubler.com hotline and bring in Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, my congresswoman. I'm proud to say I live in her district and uh, enthusiastically voted for her uh, when she ran, both in the primary and general, obviously. Uh, but Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us here on Tony Katz today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. You put a statement out, uh, a couple of statements, actually, that uh, that I want to discuss. But one was on the importance of showing respect and support for our law enforcement personnel. And one had as a subtitle uh, to your your statement uh, a reference to Officer Noah Shanavez, who we've been talking about here on the show. Uh, What what motivated you to do that, uh, Congresswoman, and and, and what was really your uh, goal in doing so? Well, uh, thank you for discussing it, because it is a very, very important issue. I actually met with Noah's parents on Friday, and when I saw the statement that was in the article that happened at HSC, when I saw that really the level of really uh, uh, 
worrisome eyes of police officers that bravely serve in our country every day. I was just saying, like, you know, even in the military, you are not every day on the front line. And a police officer, you're every day on the front line. And these guys defend our freedoms. And I'll tell you something. If you do not have honest police force, you will not have free republic. This is the fundamentals, fundamentals of free republic. And you see countries like Ukraine, they cannot get back because they cannot get this, you know, underlying instruments and check and balances. So these people are real heroes. We need to cherish. We need to support them. And now we have attack on people that serve in the military, people that serve in the police force, and we're attacking them. This is unacceptable. Yeah, and you know when when people and police in particular, you know, I, I know a lot of police officers. I train with a lot of police officers. I'm friends with a lot, and you know what what they say is that it's very very it's a very very hard time in America to be a police officer because of the constant attacks, and that's why I think statements like yours are so important because I think the 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 statements of support and the and the public showings of support for our law enforcement are far too few and in, and and far in between um and we do need to do a bunch much better job of that so i think public statements uh, especially from members of congress uh, i think go a long way and i applaud you for doing that well i think it's not just it is you know public safety this is our number one core function of our government you know, we do a lot of other things that we shouldn't be. We harass people too much, but protect people's rights to life, liberty, and property. And having a proper functional criminal justice system and provide public safety, this is our number one function of the government. So all of my fellow, you know, politicians are running on this, oh, we're going to do this, support the police. Show how to support. Show how you support their family, how you support veterans, how you support fallen soldiers and their families. And I haven't seen that, that outpouring support that Elwood Police Department and family of NOAA should be getting. And it is unfortunate for me. I'll do my part, but I think every other politician that runs on these issues, on public safety and supporting police officers, they need to show it, not just talk about it. Well, and that's what your statement does. And again, I, I, I think um, that was the right thing to do at the right time. You mentioned Ukraine and, you know, in, in, in the context of, hey, you can lose your fundamental freedoms uh, when they're not protected on the home front. But you also put a statement out today that I just saw that that I was also glad to read. And it was interesting because you're calling for more oversight, essentially, and more discipline, I think, in the point-to-point uh, process of delivering lethal aid to the Ukraine. And this fits in with statements you've made after, I believe, you've now made seven visits to Ukraine, your, your country of origin, as I recall, um, since the war began even. But you've, you've pointed out the logistical need to make sure that what we send to Ukraine is winding up in the right hands and with a concern for corruption or, or, or resources, including arms, being diverted off uh, for someone to make a profit somewhere. Some people have come out and said, oh, look at this. Um, she's supporting Putin and all of this, which I, when I read that, I laughed out loud saying, I think you're talking about the very last person who's going to support Putin, but, but it's still okay to say, listen, we need to be more disciplined on making sure our money and the resources we send to Ukraine wind up in the right hands. It's not support for Putin to say there might be some corruption in Ukraine that we need to be aware of and be logistically disciplined uh, around in delivering our aid to Ukraine. Is that is that a fair description of what you were trying to communicate? Well, let me tell you, Sam, so we have to sometimes learn from our mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. And Afghanistan was a big failure. We spent a lot of money, 
and we really didn't have a success and withdrawal was in a debacle what's happened it's just really embarrassing and sad situation so we need to understand we're dealing with a very you know corrupt governance with you know with people with competence in other issues but the difference here also that we have people from bottom up in ukraine and we need to separate governments and people ukrainian fighters and ukrainian people the two revolutions they're dying for freedom they're constantly constantly fighting and the more we can help them directly eliminate because there's just it's a combination of incompetency infiltrations corruption willingness to power have a power grab because the system they don't have a proper justice system with check and balances is a top down centralized system which has, should be real reform but if we manage the processes if we tell this is our weapons this is our money, and we will tell what you do with our money. It's our responsibility to do that. So it's properly used that our weapons efficiently get to front line, that we have go to the soldiers that are bravely fighting because they have amazing people that are willing to fight against very brutal force. And it's really terrible what they're doing and what they, how they fight. But we, it is something that we need to do. And also have an oversight that it goes to the people and right causes. Then we can have success. Otherwise, it's going to be the same failure on top of it. Since people are going to be fighting, it's going to be enormous loss of life because Ukrainians are not going to lay down their weapons. They're going to be fighting with nothing. And there is going to be enormous, enormous casualties if we don't start managing the process and lead it. And if we do, we can have a success and have strong allies and strong Europe, which is important for us. That sounds fantastic to me. And I hope you get support for that idea from your fellow members of Congress as well. Thanks, Victoria Sparks, my Congresswoman. We're coming up on a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today.